Welcome to The How of Business with your host, Henry Lopez, the podcast that helps you start, run, and grow your small business. And now, here is your host. This is Henry Lopez. Welcome to this episode of The How of Business. My guest today is Kyle Ewing. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here today. Yeah, looking forward to the conversation. You know, how do you develop an idea for a unique product and then take it beyond the idea and successfully develop it and bring it to market? And before you even get to that idea, how do you find the courage, because that's really what it takes to leave a successful corporate career, overcome a business failure along the way, and yet persevere and become a successful entrepreneur? So Kyle Ewing is, is with me today to share his inspirational entrepreneur story and how he launched most recently and is growing his latest business, Terra Slate Paper. You want to receive more information about the How of Business, including links to the show notes page for this episode or to schedule a free coaching consultation with me, just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 772-837-5700 or visit thehowofbusiness.com. So Kyle Ewing is an entrepreneur and the president and founder of Terra Slate Paper. Terra Slate Paper is a tear-proof and waterproof laser printer paper. There's a lot there in that mouthful. We're going to dive into what that means. It's compatible with ballpoint pens, with copy machines, with laser printers and digital presses. Uh, TerraSlate is a synthetic paper that never needs laminating. So you can start to imagine all of the different applications for this paper. We're going to chat about that. Kyle became a full-time entrepreneur in 2014 when he left the corporate world to build his first company. He has enjoyed success as well as setbacks, and we're going to chat about those in his entrepreneur journey. And today, is successfully growing. he's successfully growing his latest business, as I mentioned, Terra Slate's paper. In his personal life, Kyle is an avid triathlete, a runner, and a mountaineer, in addition to his extensive volunteer work. Kyle lives in Denver, Colorado. And so once again, Kyle Ewing, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. So what part of Denver are you in? I'm in Denver proper, actually. Okay. We had, uh, until a couple of years ago, a car wash location, my business partner, David Begin, and I in Aurora, but we, we sold his uh, previous two and that one uh, at the end of 2019. So I've spent a lot of time there. And um, his sons, one lives in Denver proper. They both went to Boulder. So yeah, I'm familiar with that area. I get out there as often as I can. Very good. How long have you been there? Uh, I was actually born in Aurora, so I'm, oh, I'm wow. from the Denver metro area and lived here all my life except for a brief stint um, in Honolulu. So you've seen some crazy growth in the Denver area. That's right. Yeah, the, yeah. it's it's honestly been really fun to see. Has the, it? The, the facilities that, that Denver offers now are phenomenal, and the, the locals will always complain about more people moving in. Um, but it's really been a good thing for the economy and, and for the state overall. Yeah, that's a great perspective because you're right. The, a lot of the people that I know uh, complain about it <laughs> as if uh, all the Californians are taking over Colorado, but, but you're right. It, it, it's always a, there's always a positive. Um, so let's get into you. Just give me the summary of your early career after school, that, that corporate career. Summarize that experience for me. Sure thing. I graduated from um, University of Denver um, with my MBA and immediately started work in the, in the corporate world as a management consultant. And um, that was a great job right out of school. I was really lucky to get that position. And it involved um, a lot of travel. Uh, I commuted to New York City um, and to Philadelphia every week um, and, and really learned a lot about corporate structure, how a big company works, how they grow, how they adapt and rebrand um, to market changes and really liked that work. Um, at one point I met Ashley, who's now my wife and decided that I didn't wanna be traveling Sunday through Thursday every week. And so I changed jobs and I took a job here in the Denver Tech Center and did similar work, but didn't have to travel and really enjoyed that role as well. Um, I did forecasting for the wireless phone industry. So uh, I would make the projections um, at, at the top level, as well as all the way down to each individual store for all of the Verizon, Sprint, 
um, AT&T and cricket stores around the country. And their goal is to have a 98% in stock um, service level, meaning that uh, they have the phone you want 98% of the time. Um, but as you know, cell phones have very short shelf life because as soon as the new iPhone or the new Android comes out, nobody wants the old one and you have to mm-hmm. discount it basically down to zero in order to get it off your shelf. So a lot of visibility throughout the, those companies on that forecast um, and that fed all the way into Wall Street. So uh, really learned a lot about um, math that I didn't get into with uh, my MBA. Um, started working with something called double exponential forecast smoothing and triple exponential mm-hmm. forecast smoothing. That sounds really complicated. Really, it boils down to you create a forecast and you factor in seasonality. Um, so a, a lot of good learnings there. Um, and while I was doing that, I realized that uh, maybe I don't want to be in the corporate world forever. So I started working on a side hustle. Mm, I see. And what, what was that side hustle? That side hustle was called Gorilla Tags ID Systems. Okay, and- I see. So that you started on the side, but I, I want to go back before we go on to that. Now, looking back at it, you know, a lot of people who graduate, a lot of young people who graduate from a business school will go the management consulting route, go to the big four or whatever, something similar, maybe a boutique firm. With the idea, I think that that prepares you for then either a step up in a corporate world or for entrepreneurship, looking back at it, you've alluded to it, but do you think that that proved to be the case for you? You know, if I had wanted to work at a large corporation, that experience would have been phenomenally helpful. Becoming an entrepreneur after a management consultant, it's, it's really a different skill set in my mind because you go from a, a corporation that has potentially hundreds of thousands of employees that you're consulting for to a company where it's just you, you know, you have a company of of one um, and you're not on the payroll. So, so maybe it's a company of of zero. So um, the, the things that did carry over are, are perseverance, you know, this isn't working now, but there might be a way to get there. And then the thing that I still try to do is think about my business or what I'm working on from the perspective of a consultant. And the reason Mm. that's valuable is that a consultant is not, deeply involved in the decision-making around that project. They don't have any um, political ties to the people involved. They don't have an agenda. They're, they're purely objective and have an outsider's point of view. So on a regular basis, when I'm facing a challenge as an entrepreneur, I think if I were consulting on this project or with this business, what would I be telling me? Um, and, and that helps me take the emotion out of the decision and, and really step back and look at it through that lens. And often that helps me make a better decision. Yeah. Okay. So, so tell me again, what is it that you were having a successful corporate career doing well? It sounds like even enjoying it, but what was it that drove you to decide to start on, at least on the side with something of your own? I've always had a, a passion for entrepreneurship. Um, you know, I was really interested in it when I was a little kid. Um, and I, I think that's where I had always envisioned going. I just didn't have a product or a business that I could start. Mm-hmm. Did you have influences early on or your parents, uh, business owners, or were those influences early in your life? You know, that's a great question. Um, no, nobody's ever asked me that. Both my parents are attorneys um, and so is my wife. So I seem to have a pattern there. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I had for a while envisioned becoming an attorney like my parents and exactly. going to law school and, um, to be honest, one day my father talked me out of it. He said, mm. you know, that he thought that there's probably too many lawyers and that I might enjoy doing business more than law. And, um, so I, at that point, I lived in the same uh, area as the, um, as the chancellor of DU and he was nice enough to take a meeting with me and he invited me over to his house and I, I proposed it to him. I said, I'm thinking about being an attorney. Um, I just got some advice that I maybe shouldn't do that. You're, you're a business guy. Um, his name is Daniel Ritchie and he, he's been fairly successful throughout his career. Um, and he said, business is the only way to go. And uh, so I took, I really took that advice to heart. And he said, you know, if you have an interest in entrepreneurship, that's, that's something that, um, 
you could probably do well at. Somebody that would be willing to ask the chancellor for a one-on-one -on -one meeting as a student of the school might have what it takes to become an entrepreneur. So you should, you should consider that. Because you had the, even then the courage to ask. Yeah. Yeah. And I honestly, I didn't think he'd take the meeting. Um, but I just guessed at what his email might be based on the, the faculty emails at the school. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I sent it to three different emails that I thought might be his. And one of them hit the other two bounced back. And, and then I got a reply the next day. Yeah, that goes to that, that perseverance. Okay, so Gorilla, a Gorilla Tags ID system, how long before then you left your corporate career and went to do that full-time? Um, it took about a year um, before I really had the confidence to leave. And um, Gorilla Tags, what we made is ID systems for athletes, meaning a bracelet or a set of dog tags or something you would lace into your shoe that would have your name, emergency contact, and your medical allergies. That way, for instance, if you and I, Henry, went to climb a 14er here in Colorado and you fell and bumped your head, I would immediately know who to call. And when the, uh, the EMTs got there, they would know how to treat you. Mm -hmm. uh, I have so one now, I mean, maybe back then they weren't as popular that I use when I do uh, road cycling that just goes on my wrist. It's kind of a rubber band kind of and a little metal plate that has my information, Yeah. Uh -huh. so that, yep. that kind of a thing, right? Exactly. And I, and I think I know exactly who you're speaking about, and that's likely to be Road ID. Um, mm -hmm. And that Correct. was one of our um, main competitors. Okay. All right. So did, how did you fund this side hustle? Um, I, I funded it just out of savings from um, being a management consultant, just sort of siphoning off uh, money towards, towards this project, um, realizing initially that it, it may be for nothing, um, but Road ID had proven the concept. My goal was to make a better version of that product. Got it. And so what happened, what ended up happening with this business? Uh, we, I ultimately sold it. I made a successful exit. Um, I'm not allowed to disclose who that was to. However, um, what they wanted was, uh, our technology, our processes and our book of business. Why did you sell? Um, my passion in business is growing the business and then selling them. I don't have an interest in making it into the size of a company that a management consultant would work for. Um, the offer presented itself. And, um, you know, I, I always joke that I, I cried all the way to the bank. <laughs> I love that. All right. And then what was the next business, which I think is the one that wasn't as successful, right? Yeah. So um, I started a company called Testline. And what we did is we competed with Uber and Lyft only in the Denver uh, and Colorado market. Um, and we, we drove Teslas, so fully electric cars. And we had an app, it was very slick. People loved the service. Um, it, it really did start to take off. The, the difficulty and the, the real challenge was that it was a 24 hour business. And that was my mistake looking back is that I should have set hours for pickups and drop-offs, um, but in an effort to get as many customers and accommodate as many people as possible, you know, we wanted all of those bookings that we could get. We would take airport rides from Aspen to Denver that picked up at 4 a.m. Uh, so the driver would have to leave at midnight to do the pickup, and then they'd have to drive all the way back down to Denver. They'd get to Denver at 8 a.m., um, and that, that became tiresome for drivers, so they would, uh, they would not show up to the, to the shift from time to time. And you so, were hiring drivers as opposed to the Uber model of independent consultants or independent drivers rather. That's right. Everybody was an employee. And I thought that was an important differentiator from Uber and Lyft. And it really allowed us to hire a higher level of driver. But as a result, you had to balance that, that resource and you had those more idle times at night. If I'm following, that was harder to do. Yeah. And when people wouldn't show up to take their drive, I would have to jump out of bed, race to the garage <laughs> and then go drive it. Right. Um, and, and so while not setting a geographic boundary also hurt you because you were spread too thin. Is that, am I following correctly? That's exactly right. So what ended up happening with that business? Uh, what ended up happening was that the, the cars we were driving were all Tesla Model Xs. They were um, about $120,000 a piece at the time. So very Ooh. capital intensive. Um, and the phone would ring 24 hours a day. Uh, people 
you know, from Europe would be flying in and would want to speak to their driver three weeks in advance. And we, we honestly wouldn't know who the driver is going to be until the day before. Right. Um, and so it became kind of a customer service nightmare. Um, so the customer took it as if this was a private limousine service instead of a shared ride service. Is that fair? That is fair, but they would be accurate. And that's how we were permitted. Because that's as, what you were trying to differentiate as. Uh-huh. Yeah. So we really uh, were a luxury limousine company. That's how we I were see. Um, permitted see. with the city and the state. But yeah, the, the level of customer service um, was immense and it was uh, we weren't making enough money to staff a full-time customer service agent 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it, it kind of ended up being, it would ring to my cell phone. So when did you make that decision to shut it down, which I find to be, you know, <laughs> I think the toughest decision. And I think the second toughest is, do I sell a successful business? But the toughest is, when do I give up? When do I cut and stop my losses and call it a failure? That's hard to do. Yeah. You know, it, it was a really difficult decision because the company was successful, but in my mind, it had an infinite scale problem, meaning that as the company becomes more and more successful and we need more and more cars, we perpetually need additional $100,000 cars. And even if we had 400 cars, profitability would be further and further away with every car that you added. And so at some point I put my consultant hat on and I said, you know what, even if we got as big as Uber, we would be infinitely in debt and there's just no way to turn a profit. And I don't want to be a company that's like Uber and Lyft where they really never make money. Um, I mean, that path would have meant you were seeking some kind of an exit, either, you know, an infusion of cash from the outside or selling the business to someone else. Yeah, exactly. But why do you say that it was successful? Um, a business is successful in my mind is that you can make a profit at the end of the day um, and you can have customers that will repeat buy. Now we weren't super profitable, but the customers were very passionate about the service. As soon as people would try it, they loved it. They, they would constantly tell us, we're only going to use you. I want to use you to go to my events. I want you to pick me up on Friday night with my husband, take me downtown, pick me up. I'm going to use you guys for everything. Um, we even had a, a hairdresser that as part of her service, she integrated ours. So we would go pick up her clients, drive them to the appointment and then drive them to work afterwards. And so it was kind of a part of a package she had designed. So oh, in nice. that way, the business was very successful. Um, I probably didn't charge enough for each ride. Um, I, I launched with penetration pricing and never really raised it enough. Mm -hmm. And so you shut that business down and how did, how did that feel thinking back to it? How did you feel about all of that? Um, oh man, uh, absolutely deflated. You know, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes entrepreneurs can make is, you know, you, you built a successful company, you, you made a nice exit, and now you think you have a hot hand that you can, you can make it work no matter what, you know, you can overcome whatever the challenge is. Maybe you don't know what all those challenges are yet, but you've, you've got the skill set and that toolbox uh, you're going to get there. But I think often it's easy to be overconfident. So it was, it, it felt awful. Absolutely awful. Did you burn the money that you had made from the previous exit on this business? I sure did. Yeah. Not all of it, but um, I, a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, absolutely. When that first happened, when you shut it down, what was going through your mind as far as what you were going to do next? Was there a thought that I'll go back to get a job or did not not enter your thinking as far as options? Um, the, the good news was um, once the writing was kind of on the wall, I had started TerraSlate already ah, and TerraSlate had started to become successful. And I realized that TerraSlate is a much better business than TestLine. And so that actually helped me close TestLine and, and reduce the blow a little bit because yeah, I have no something doubt. to work on. This does seem like a good business. It seems like it scales, it scales profitably. So um, that was pretty helpful. No doubt, no doubt. All right, so tell us about what, how you came to that idea for, for TerraSlate. I think first let's, let's start with a proper introduction as to what it is. What is TerraSlate paper? So TerraSlate paper um, writes and prints like regular paper but it's 100% waterproof and it's also rip proof, 
Now, why is that useful? Um, uh, amazingly, I didn't know at the time when I started it, um, it, but what it does is it replaces the need for lamination. Um, TerraSlate, you can you put it in your laser printer, you click print, comes out, inks the ink, which I should really call toner, um, is designed to work with this material in such a way that the, the toner is also waterproof. You can take it scuba diving, you can leave it underwater, and then you can recycle it, which you can't do with a laminated sheet. Right. So if I want to use this, I need to buy the TerraSlate paper as well as the ink, the, the toner cartridge that's special for, from TerraSlate? Uh, that's a great question. And, and the answer is actually no. Um, with TerraSlate, you can print it through any laser printer. Um, it's compatible with all the different types of toners um, that are used in digital presses um, and, and basic off-the-shelf, off you know, Home Depot, uh, Office Depot, specials. So any laser printer or copy machine works great. So without divulging the, the IP here, not that I would be smart enough to understand it, how does this work? How is it that this with a regular laser printer, it permeates this paper to a, the extent that it doesn't bleed, it doesn't wash off, it doesn't get damaged? How does that work? The way that it works is in any laser printer, doesn't matter if it's on your desk or one of the massive commercial ones we have here, they, they all operate in the same basic way. And they have what's called a fuser. And a fuser is just a heating element. And the way it works is you, you put the paper through the printer and it puts toner on the top of the sheet and it puts heat on the bottom. And, and the heat is what's bonding the toner that's powder to the paper. And what we did is we developed a synthetic material that works just as well, if not better than regular paper. So, so to, uh, to absorb and, and bind that ink to this special paper. That's right. And it's actually not being absorbed. Um, ah, it's being bonded. The, the heat see. is hot enough that it's chemically bonding the toner to the sheet. So it's almost like it's now become a tattoo on that piece of special <laughs> terrorist paper. That's exactly right. I'm literally going to use that. Yeah. Good. Okay. So is it a patented technology, this paper? It, we actually have what's called a trade secret. And trade the, secret, okay. which is much I, more effective in a lot of arenas than a patent. So talk to me about why you made that decision. That's exactly right. And the difference is if you patent something, um, you have to disclose, in, in our case, the chemical makeup of it. Um, now our paper is made from polyester, but if we disclose exactly how it's made, it becomes public. And all you'd have to do is change literally one molecule and you would beat the patent. Or someone overseas could copy it directly exactly. without any repercussion. Patent, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is, it can be next to impossible, especially if it's overseas. And so a trade secret is similar to what Coke has. Now, Coke doesn't want to patent their formula for the exact same reason that we don't. Now, what it is, is you just keep it a secret and you don't tell anybody and you don't give anybody access to the whole thing. So you may have one plant that does this part and one plant that does that part, but by doing that, not anybody has the entire recipe, if you want to call it that. How did you arrive at that decision to go with a trade secret versus a patent? Um, my, my wife, Ashley, um, when I met her, she was in law school, but um, by then she was an attorney. And so she was paramount in making that decision in determining yeah. Um, you know, what the advantages are of each and, and what might be the drawback. So um, shout out to Ashley, big thank you for, for getting us on the right path there. Yeah, one, one of the many benefits of being surrounded by attorneys is you, you got <laughs> some right. great advice early. Now, it's such a great, huge takeaway and why I'm diving into because I have this conversation often with, with clients, people who have come up with an idea. And I think there's just so much misunderstanding about patents. Not that I'm advising somebody should not get a patent. What you should do is talk to an attorney who is well-versed on this to give you your pros and cons. But the thing that people mostly miss on patents is what you've talked about, that now it becomes public knowledge. So there's no way to protect that worldwide. There is no way. And then secondly, that, that you have to defend that patent, even in the United States, once you have it. Correct. That's exactly right. So I, let's go back to how you came to the idea then. How did this come about as an idea for you? While I was in college, uh, several of my friends that studied abroad lost their passports. And um, that's a real problem because you can't get home. 
Um, the easy way you combat that is you bring a photocopy and then you go to the embassy and they give you a replacement. Um, but my friends being the adventurous type, um, they lost their copy uh, because it got wet and soggy. And so what I tried to do initially is develop TerraSlate paper for that specific application. So we would print a waterproof, rip-proof copy of your passport. And that way, when um, you travel overseas, you leave your original passport in the hotel safe or in your dorm room, and you carry a copy with you that would allow you to rent a scooter you know, whatever you want to do, provide your identification. Um, but if you lost your real passport, this one could immediately get you a replacement if you took it to the embassy. So that triggered the idea for, hey, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a paper that exists that serves this purpose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I tried all kinds of things on the market. I tried Tyvek. The problem with Tyvek is that it melts in a, in a laser printer. Um, lamination isn't really practical because you can't get um, you can't get it to a size that's going to work at the embassy, but that also fits in your pocket. You know, you can't fold it once it's been laminated. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's really how the idea came to fruition is how to make that possible. All right. So you had this idea in college timeframe. Is that what you said? Um, I had the idea post-college, but just okay. it was from thinking back to the instance that happened. So from that initial idea to you're selling the first piece of uh, TerraSlate paper. How, how long are we talking about? Um, about a year um, wow. in development. It's a short period of time. Yeah, relatively short. Felt, felt like a very long time. It was a very expensive time. Now you were expensive, why? Um, prototyping different types of materials and, and yeah. formulas. Getting something that would accept toner, wouldn't melt, would be flexible, was waterproof. All of those things took a lot of iterations. And you were doing this while you were running Gorilla Tags. Correct. How on earth did you find the time to balance the two things? Um, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly. Um, but, you know, one of the gaps with Gorilla Tags was that we made a product so durable that you never needed to buy a second one. And that was really an issue because you had to do advertising to make the sale, but then they would only buy one. And yes, maybe some customers would buy one for their brother and their sister and their mom. But it's really not a repeatable business model right. in that the lifetime value of your customer is pretty low. Pretty and low. so what I really liked about TerraSlate was that it was easier to make. And at the time, you didn't need two backup copies of your passport, but it was a lot faster to make and a lot less expensive. Um, once we figured out that passports were a terrible thing to make, I think my payback period on my initial run of production was something like 200 years because I was selling these things for like 10 bucks a piece with free shipping. And I was selling two a week. So, I mean, it was, it was awful yeah. economics yeah. there. Um, but eventually a, a guy called and he said, Hey, I'm in the oil exploration, oil exploration industry. And he said, I bought this product for all three of my kids. I think it's great, but can I buy a case of this paper? And that was sort of the aha moment of like, ah, this is not just one product. This has more uses. And so, so you were selling it as a one piece or a couple of pieces is what people were buying for that one use of something like the passport. It hadn't dawned on you yet that, wait a second, I need to sell this in larger quantities. Right, right. Got it. So that inquiry spawned it. And then that's also obviously why if I go to the website, there's a big focus on restaurant menus because that's a more a higher volume kind of thing and something that changes periodically, right? Absolutely. You know, and restaurant menus are, are profitable for us and, and they work really well in that environment. Um, the, the menu is waterproof. You can literally dishwash it in between customers if you want. Um, and it's, it's a repeatable business. The lifetime value of the customer is very high because every month or three months, the customer will change the prices or the items on their menu and you'll print a new set for them. So where is it manufactured? So we manufacture in three different states. Um, it used to be exclusively in Houston, but Hurricane Harvey um, put our plant underwater. So um, quickly realized we needed um, to have a couple of backups. And so we manufacture... Um, in Texas, in Wisconsin, and um, in uh, Georgia. And we do all of the print production from our 
6,000 square foot facility um, right here in Denver. By print production, you mean like if I call for menus, you'll help me design that menu, print it for me, and then ship it to me completed. That's exactly right. The When you were just in Houston, though, how were you separating the manufacturing as it relates to the trade secret? Um, it, it's difficult to get into that, but um, basically there are no new paper mills in the country. I mean, it's just paper in as the, in the traditional sense is a, is a dying industry. So nobody's going to build a new paper mill. And yeah. so what you do is you buy capacity through one of the current mills. And at first, nobody wanted to work with us because we were nobody. And they said, we're not going to waste our time. <laughs> um, but with the, with the regular paper industry on a 9% a year decline, they had extra capacity that we were eventually able to, um, to use. And now they literally compete for our business because we can really help them keep their lights on with a new profitable uh, market segment. And our growth is, is phenomenal. So they're thrilled and so are we. Okay. It, um, so I, I want to go back to the process of developing it. It was only a year. You went through various prototypes, but I, I guess I wasn't still clear. I didn't ask the question on who, how did you initially develop the formula for this? Was that something you did or did you hire someone to help you with that? Or what was that process like? Yeah, I'm not a chemical engineer. So, so that's something that I had to hire and I didn't know any chemical engineers, but the, the way you figure that kind of thing out is you call somebody that might know somebody in that industry and you say, Hey, it's Kyle. I got a question. I'm looking for a chemical engineer. Here's what I'm trying to make. And they say, man, I don't know anybody like that. And you say, okay, no problem. You call the next guy on your list. And he says, actually, I might know somebody for you. And you, you just kind of run down those leads until you get to somebody that can, that can help you. And if you're polite and respectful of people's time, um, they, they love to help you. People, people like to be helpful. Um, and sending bottles of wine as a thank you is, is always <laughs> money well spent in, in that area because all of a sudden they may think of another lead for you that you could try um, to find somebody that might know how to do that. And so um, the short answer is I hired people. Okay. And then when you, when you selected them, obviously you hired them as a contractor, they signed an agreement that the IP was yours, confidentiality, all that kind of stuff to protect what eventually the final formula ended up as being the trade secret. That's right. And, and when you're doing something like that, you have to remember that it's not possible to protect your idea. Absolutely. Right. People could steal it all along the way. You have to tell a lot of people about it um, that aren't going to sign an NDA. Um, you know, they, they have no motivation to do that. They're going to help you or not, but they're not going to help you if you make them sign an NDA potentially. So um, I, I always tell entrepreneurs that the risk of somebody ripping off your ideas is actually pretty low because even if they try, they're not going to have the knowledge base that you have, even if that's only a little bit. And, and if they do, they're not going to have the motivation to pursue it like you will. And so you have to tell people. And, and when I have a new idea, I tell everybody I can think of, Hey, what do you think of this? I'm, I'm thinking of doing this, this, and that, what do you think? And, and half of them will tell you it's a great idea. And half of them will tell you that'll never work. Um, but they might give you an idea along the way that, it's helpful. And, and they're not going to rip you off. I mean, they just, they already have a job. They're busy. They have a wife and kids or they're busy doing other things. So the risk that you get ripped off in my mind is, is actually fairly low. Yeah. I love that, Kyle. Thanks for sharing that. Cause that's, that's my belief as well. Obviously when you got to the final formula, you have to protect that, but I think ideas need to breathe. They need to be shared. So like you said, you get that, that uh, input back. I'm sure that there are exceptions certainly, but by and large, we can't be too afraid of somebody taking it. Because like you said, there's such separation between an idea and actually going and executing on it. Yeah. You know, the one, I spoke on a panel and, and one of the guys with me said that the road is littered with good ideas. Yes. So a good idea is not even worth a dime a dozen. It's worth less. But it's the execution, which is where all of the value is. And so you know, a good idea can easily be shared because people don't want to execute. It's a lot of effort. Being an entrepreneur is, is wonderful in so many ways. But if you actually start, you see that it's a much more difficult process than, than what people imagine. Well said. Well said. All right. Is the business profitable now? It is. You know, we, we were actually profitable from, um, from very early on. Um, 
I got great advice um, from a guy in Boulder. Um, he's an investor named Bill Flagg. And one of his principles as an investor is, is growth while being profitable. And um, a lot of people say things like you have to spend money to make money. And I, I'm not a believer in that. Um, we all have a cell phone plan. Almost every single one has unlimited minutes. And you can do a lot of sales in eight hours if you want to. Um, and it doesn't cost you anything. So um, we, we've worked hard to, to maintain profitability from, from the go. Um, and and I'm, re I'm really proud of that. That's something uh, that doesn't come easy because it is, uh, it's very tempting to spend money. But if you don't know the initiative well enough to know if it's going to be profitable, it, it's probably not something you're ready to take on. How did you fund this company? Um, I funded this company um, through proceeds from Gorilla Tags and then as needed, I was building a lot of websites for, for people. I had oh, built a website for Gorilla Tags um, and the, the folks from Shopify, which was then a relatively small company, um, asked me if I'd like to be a Shopify expert and, and build websites for other people. And they would list me on their site as an expert um, and I could charge whatever I wanted or whatever I could get. Um, and so um, I think I built $120,000 worth of websites in that first year while I was developing um, TerraSlate. Love that. All right. A any, any outside funding to date? Um, up until the beginning of the year, we, I had never taken a dollar of outside funding on any of my companies. Um, just recently, um, I, I did a deal with a company out of Toronto called ClearBank, which has recently changed to ClearCo. And um, they, uh, you know, I think it's interesting to get the real numbers. I'm happy to disclose them. They invested um, $100,000 for 1% of the company. So that gave us a $10 million valuation. And um, I'm thrilled to work with them. They're, they're wonderful people and they have been so helpful as a resource. I was just say because the $100,000 is nice, but it seems to me like there was more as to why you went with that external investment. And that's the access, the knowledge, the resources that they can bring to bear. Is that fair? Absolutely. And, and you're exactly right. You know, we didn't need the cash. Um, we had been approached by investors previously. Um, but what ClearCo is doing is um, they're a, started out as a bank for entrepreneurs. And entrepreneurs have a really hard time getting loans and money because you don't have traditional paperwork like you do when you when you have a W-2. Um, right. and, and you have to gamble as a bank on a startup when you got a lot of applications for loans, you just give it to a big company instead of the startup because why take the risk? Uh, and, and a couple of the things that ClearBank um, does now and we're their first venture, like ClearBank Ventures, we're their first venture. Um, they will do um, all kinds of things like help us vet vendors and th they'll set up meetings. So say we wanna change marketing agencies what they'll do is they'll set up the meeting and they'll make the introduction with companies that they've vetted. And that agency will now take the meeting um, and hold it in a higher regard than if it were just me and say, I'm a nobody. Um, but they, they see that ClearBank um, is a $2 billion company. They're going to put their best staff on that account versus if, you know, I'm, I'm a nobody from Denver you know, I'm going to get the, I'm going to get the intern because my account's not big enough. So right. that's one of the small things that we developed with them, um, that they're going to roll out to all of their, um, ventures, um, companies. And, and that's just one example. So they, they're really cool in what they're doing. Wonderful. All right. What's the distribution model now? How do you sell the product now? We do everything factory direct. Um, so we don't have distributors. Um, we, we, ship everything out of Denver to customers, whether it's blank paper or printed materials. Um, the only two exceptions are we sell on walmart.com and we also do a lot of business um, with Amazon through amazon.com. Okay. All right. What, what's the biggest challenge that your business is facing here over the next 12 months, let's say? Over the last year during COVID, you know, the restaurant industry effectively died. And so we had to retool a lot of our business. We, we did a bunch of new military contracts um, and we're actually able to maintain the same level of revenue um, and then a little bit higher profit than we did the year before. So we worked really hard for that. And now the challenge is 
we kept the business the same size with all new customers. And then all of a sudden the restaurant industry has come roaring back and the mask yeah. mandate was-, was Are, Do you find that people are going back to the printed menus as opposed to the scan the code kind of thing? Absolutely. We, we've never done so much business. Um, we are running seven days a week right now with two shifts and extended hours on top of that in order to keep up with demand. Um, and and we're, we're still not able to. We, we're literally printing and shipping as fast as we can. We, we've hired temps. Um, yesterday, my office administrator brought in her husband to help us. Um, so it's, it's literally all hands on deck and then some to, to meet the demand of, of just the restaurant industry right now. Mm, wow. There's pent up demand there. When you had to make that shift to federal type of contracts, government contracts, you know, that's a completely different sales cycle, completely different approach. Did you bring in help to help you do that? Or did you just figure that out on your own? We, we figured that out on our own. Um, and I think it's very tempting to hire people, but but somebody with that skill set is going to command a pretty big salary. And we don't I know see. if we'll be successful in that. So um, what I do is, is what I always do. And I put my headphones in and I get on my cell phone and I start calling people. Um, and, and you call till you figure out how to do it. And the entrepreneurs that can do that are always successful. But a lot of people want to sit back and wait and let the business come to them. But if you want to grow your business, you don't need to spend money on, on Facebook ads or Google ads or, or trade shows. You know, if you work your cell phone, if you just do one hour a day, literally commit to one hour a day, you can make a real business and you can really make it grow. Such a, such a great takeaway, I think there, Kyle. And that, uh, did you always have that, um, I don't know what the right word is, confidence you know, to, to make those essentially at best warm calls where you're going to deal with a lot of rejection was that something that came to you naturally or did you have to develop that skill? No, I, I wish I could say that that came naturally. Um, the way I got started was I had one of my best friends. Um, his name is John. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. He's an MBA also. He, he said early on in Terra Slate when I was trying to figure out how to sell it, he's like, you need to get on that cell phone for an hour a day. Um, and his thought was you, you pick an hour and mine was two to three o'clock. And he's like, you dial until the hour's over. And it doesn't matter. Did you matter. dread it when you first started? Did you dread that hour? Oh, absolutely awful. And the stomach ache of the rejection and, you know, people tell you all sorts of awful things. Um, and then you, you develop a pattern that, that works well. And then, you know, you change a few words and maybe that works a little better. Or maybe it doesn't. And you, you change it a little more until all of a sudden you have a, like a little pitch that works really well. And you know how to get to the decision maker. And then when you get to the decision maker, you know what to say to them. Um, and so you, I just literally did that one hour a day on the cell phone. And it doesn't matter if you make a million dollars or zero, you keep dialing until three o'clock and, um, and, and God help you. There's no interruptions. You just and, keep going. That's how you develop that skill. And that's how you learn to separate, not taking it personally, that this is business. Right. And when somebody tells you something awful, you just say, understood. Thank you. And, yeah. and, and then, and then you dial on. the next number. You don't let it sink yeah. in. Love that. Okay. What, what's, what's next? What's the next big thing that you can share for TerraSlate? So something we're really excited about that we actually launched um, at the beginning of April, but is not public yet because um, we're afraid that if we promote this, we, we won't be able to meet the demand for it is um, with our menus, we developed a, a coating that we put over the top of the toner. Now it's not making the paper waterproof. It's already waterproof, um, but it contains silver. The, the metal and the element. And um, it ha we grind silver down into powder and we've, we've put this um, into a coating that we apply to the top and the bottom of every menu. And the reason we use silver is it's naturally antimicrobial and naturally antiviral. Mm. It's literally why silverware was originally made out of silver. Oh. And the benefit is that every menu that comes out of our facility is self-sanitizing. So if I touch it and then you touch it, it's not gonna grow viruses, it's not gonna harbor uh, microbes or bacteria. And um, like I said, we've been doing it the last couple of months. It's phenomenal. We've only been telling people here and there word of mouth, we haven't promoted it at all. Um, and that's because we, we, we literally can't meet the demand if we get any more busy. Yeah, fascinating. All right, question for you, Kyle. If, if someone asks you, you know, I've got an idea for a product, 
I know it's going to be great. What, what do you, what advice do you give them as to where to start? The advice that I give is to create what's called an MVP or a minimum viable product. And as an entrepreneur and often people that are entrepreneurs are perfectionists, they don't want to launch or show their product to anyone until it's perfect. The issue with that is when it's perfect in your mind, it won't be perfect for the market. So my advice is get something together that you can show somebody, a working prototype and ask them, what do you think? And then, you know, when you're asking your family members, they're going to tell you it's great. I mean, of course, and uh, they'll be your first customers, sure. But that's not really proving the business. You need to ask people that are a little less interested um, in you personally. And, and they'll give you honest feedback and say, you know, what do you think of this? Would you use it? And then the question that you have to finish with is, would you pay for it? Um, because that always changes people's perspective. Is like, ooh, would I spend my hard-earned money on this? No. But you know what? If it had a this or a that, then I would buy it. And that's some of the most valuable feedback you can get. And then you just keep iterating. Yeah, tremendous advice. I, I, that's something I recommend and I try to take that approach myself. Thanks for sharing that. All right, we, we've touched on, is there anything we've missed as far as the product goes, TerraSlate paper, anything else you want to tell us about what it is and what it can do? Um, yeah, one cool example that we just recently did is we printed the flight manuals for the U.S. Army's Apache Longbow Attack Helicopters. So pretty cool application there. Um, we also print materials that go in the combat jets that are overseas, um, and they're basically flip books that have all of the surface-to-air missiles uh, that, are, that are in the known existence, and it tells you what the surface-to-air missile is capable of and, and how to neutralize the threat. So every once in a while, we get to work on some pretty cool projects, um, and man, I just love doing those. So the, the military yeah. is great to work with. They're super fun guys, and they're some of the most appreciative people that I've ever had an opportunity to work with. So I always love sharing that because shout out to the military guys. You guys are wonderful. Yeah, I love that. And in there in that application, obviously the waterproof component, but also the tearproof component comes into play. Yep. Exactly. And it doesn't matter um, if one of the nice things about a printed material is it doesn't need batteries. The screen doesn't break. Mm, it doesn't have right. glare. And so it's a great backup. So even though the military has the most advanced weapon systems in the world, they have everything is backed up on paper. And that's because paper never fails, especially if it's waterproof and ripproof. Yeah. Okay, we'll wrap it up. I always ask for either a book or a resource recommendation. I think you have a, a resource recommendation for us. Definitely. And, and my advice is um, while books are wonderful, I consume them and podcasts all the time, join a business leads group. And what a business leads group is, is it's, it's a group of entrepreneurs or business people. And they say, here is what I do. Who do you know that needs my service? And you make introductions for each other and you can do a ton of business. Usually they meet once a week, once a month, every two weeks, something like that. Um, go to those. If the first one isn't beneficial, that's fine. Keep going back, join two. Um, you'll meet really interesting people. Um, you'll learn how to pitch because every time you go, you have to give a little pitch. So you're going to work on refining um, what it is you do. You're going to get really succinct at what you say. It's going to be boom, 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 boom. People are going to go, wow. And then you finish with a good referral for me is, in my case, somebody in the restaurant industry. We make the best menus out there. We've got over a thousand reviews. Who do you know in the restaurant industry that I should know? join a leads group. And then when you get, um, if you're an entrepreneur and you're the president and the founder of the company and you have over a million dollars in sales, join what's called entrepreneurs organization. Um, those are the minimum requirements, but they, they do that very intentionally. And you get to work with some of the smartest people in the world. They run some of the biggest companies. Um, Sarah Blakely, who started Spanx was instrumental um, in getting me to join. Um, she is phenomenal. She, she told me that um, if you don't think it's worth the cost uh, after the first year, I'll cover your fees. Um, and I said, okay, well, you can't turn down an offer like that. And <laughs> right. um, that's the best group I've ever joined. So take advantage of those. Um, you know, they're always a carry your own bags. So they don't do the work for you, 
Um, but, but you get out of it, what you put into it and man, those are worth it. So absolutely my advice, join a business leads group, join EO when you're ready. Great recommendation. Thank you for that. All right. We'll wrap it up, Kyle. What's one thing you want us to take away from this conversation we've had really broad ranging about your entrepreneurial journey and, and growing a company, launching and growing a company like TerraSleep. What's one thing that you would like us to take away? Here, here's my takeaway. Every entrepreneur has been conditioned to tell the same story. Hey, I started this project in my basement. Then I went on Shark Tank. I made a billion dollars and I sold it. And now I live on the beach and I drink Mai Tais. Okay, but we've all heard that story a million times and there's so much more to it. Entrepreneurs are notorious for telling you how good things are going when they're not because nobody wants to invest in or buy products from a company that's not doing great. So they get conditioned to always say things are wonderful. So that's what you're going to hear. The truth is it's a lot harder than it looks. It's a lot more painful, but if you have the personality, it's totally worth it. Yeah. I love that. Where do you want us to go online to learn more about TerraSlate? Um, type us into Google, uh, or terraslate.com. Let me know if we can help you. I'd love to, I'd love to work with you. Um, if you need, if you currently laminate paper, um, give me a shout. My email is kyle.ewing at terraslate.com. Uh, I answer all my emails personally. So if you just want to talk shop or if you have a question, I'm an open book. And spell TerraSlate. It's T like Tom, E-R-R-A, and then S like Sam, L-A-T-E. Wonderful. Kyle, great conversation. I learned quite a bit. Thanks for being so transparent and, and generous with sharing your, your successes, as well as you said, your, your struggles. I appreciate you taking the time to be with me today. Well, thanks so much for having me, Henry. It's a pleasure to be on the show. I'm a big fan and um, I wish you all the best and we'll, we'll have to keep in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. This is Henry Lopez and thanks for joining me on this episode of The How of Business. My guest today again was Kyle Ewing. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or at our website, thehowofbusiness.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information about our coaching programs, online courses, show notes pages, links, and other resources, please visit thehowofbusiness.com.